We're looking at uh, a gospel uh, primer, number four, and today we've come to repentance, and this will be our last topic, and then we're going to wind things up with some uh, choosing a church. But today will be, the whole sermon will basically be focused on repentance, which is a neglected doctrine, a very important doctrine, and I'm going to be, read Matthew 4, 17. <clears throat> and from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The command to repent is connected to the preaching of the gospel throughout the New Testament. We just read Mark 4.17, uh, Matthew 4.17, Mark 1.15, Mark 6.12, Luke 13.3-5, Acts 2.28, Acts 3.19, 17.30, etc. When we define repentance, and this will be helpful to you, when we define repentance, we need to make a distinction between repentance as a change of mind or a purely inward change and the fruits of repentance. That is the effect that repentance has on one's outward behavior. <clears throat> so we're going to make a distinction. Repentance in the strict sense occurs in the mind or heart. The fruits of repentance refers to the actions a life of sanctification. Now, repentance occurs in regeneration when the Holy Spirit raises, purifies, renews, and radically changes our heart in a holy spiritual direction. Ezekiel 11, 19, 36-25-26, Acts 13, uh, 13, 18, uh, Acts 11, 18, Colossians 2:17, 17, John 3, 3-6, Ephesians 2, 1-6, Titus 3, 5, etc. As our new enlightened minds, purified minds, come in contact with the truths of Scripture, there is a change of mind, and that's what the word repentance basically means in its strict sense, a change of mind, or a change of heart, <coughs> where we emphatically reject and even hate our old world and life view, our way of thinking and living, and we turn toward the true God, Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, and the biblical world and life view. So there is a turning away from human autonomy and sin toward the living and true God and his infallible word. Biblical repentance is essentially coterminous with saving faith and that one must first believe in Jesus Christ and what the Bible says about God, the moral law, sin, guilt, salvation, etc., before one will turn away from the old pagan, atheistic, or idolatrous way of life, life of sin, to Yahweh and Jesus Christ. And some theologians talk about it as a flip side of faith. But obviously, you need faith. You need to have faith in what the Bible teaches to repent. But you also need to repent in order to have faith. And I'm talking about strictly a change of mind. Well, let's look at a change of mind. Repentance involves three basic elements. First, there is a change in the way we think about reality. There is an intellectual enlightenment. And this change of mind is comprehensive. <clears throat> One's old world and life view is emphatically rejected in favor of the biblical or Christian world and life view. There's a change of mind concerning God. Old gods and pagan or atheistic loyalties are ground into dust in order to turn and serve the only true God, Yahweh. There's a change of view regarding Jesus Christ. He is no longer seen as a fraud or merely a, a rabbi or only a prophet or some deluded fool, but is regarded as the Son of God the divine human mediator, the only Savior who is Lord over all. Okay, you go from either indifference or hatred of Christ to a complete love of Christ, a complete dedication to Christ. There's a change of mind regarding Christ. There's a change of mind regarding authority. Humanism, that is human autonomy, that's doing what you want to do, where you don't care what God says, or a false religion, 
and their human documents is rejected and the Bible alone becomes our sole authority for faith and life. There is a change of mind regarding law or ethics. <coughs> human beings or some false gods or gods made up by man are no longer seen as the source of ethics for mankind. Ethics come from a righteous, holy God. And thus the moral laws are absolutes, unchanging, and non-negotiable. And that is how you can tell really easily if somebody's a pagan or not. Where do their ethics come from? If your ethics come from the state, and the state simply makes it up, or the Supreme Court simply makes it up, and says, hey, if you want to pretend you're a woman and cut off your junk, or if you want to uh, be a sodomite, or if you want to murder babies, hey, go ahead, we say it's ethical. No. Ethics come from God, and they're absolute. They, you can't change them. What God says is true. What man says is foolish nonsense. Unless he agrees with God's word, of course. <coughs> Christ frees the whole mind from the lies of the devil and his human disciples. Maimonides. The Talmud. Islam, Hinduism, Roman Catholicism, all lies of the devil. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, John 8, 31 through 32, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Entering the narrow gate by faith in Christ is but the beginning of the Christian life. It is the continuing on that narrow, difficult road. That path of walking as a true, dedicated Christian. That is the test of genuine faith and a real profession. Christ has set us free from sin, guilt, bondage, and Satan to love and serve God. Okay, you're turning from the one, you're turning to the other. The modern mind sees freedom or liberty as freedom to sin and serve one's own lusts as he or she pleases. But, beloved, sin is the harshest of all taskmasters. Sin may be sweet on the tongue, but it is bitter and painful in the belly. It will give nothing but misery, disappointment, and then in the end, despair and hell. You need to trust and rely on Christ who has led captivity captive. Ephesians 4.8 who crushed the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, and removed the chains of bondage, death, and hell from his people. <clears throat> True Christians have the greatest, most important liberty that can be had, the eternal salvation obtained by Jesus Christ. Like I said, you could write a whole book on repentance. We're just going to scratch the surface today. Regarding ourselves as a recognition of personal sin, guilt, and helplessness. Romans 3.20 and see Romans 1.32. Those things that we once regarded as precious and dedicated our lives to, that are violations of God's moral law, are now despised, hated, and seen as offenses against God. And Paul describes the pagan mindset in Ephesians 4.17-19. Listen to what it says. The Gentiles, those are non-Jews, pagans, walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Men use women, women use men. People lie, they cheat, they steal. The life of being a pagan is a horrible life. Now sin is viewed for what it is. Evil, wicked, selfish, rebelling against God. Opposite Yahweh's nature. Something that strikes at God's purpose. Sin is a form of hatred of God and His holy law. <clears throat> it is a way to live that despises the true God. And sin, if it could, would destroy Yahweh and overturn his perfect laws. Sin is against truth itself and is the fountain of all idolatry and error. It destroys man's created purpose and creates a form of hell on earth. 
and it is the source of all murder, oppression, hatred, evil, war, and poverty in this world. So well, why do Democrats turn their cities into hellholes? Why do they treat criminals with respect and give them all sorts of rights and law-abiding citizens are treated like dirt? Because they're evil. They're satanic and they father their father the devil. Once the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to really see sin for what it is, you humble yourself. You loathe your behavior. You hate your sins. You acknowledge your guilt. And you flee immediately to Christ. Second, true repentance is a change, <coughs> has an emotional element. This is the change of affections. One's feelings, loves, and desires turn from a commitment and happy contentment with sin to a godly sorrow for sin. And we see this aspect in the case of Israel. When God gathers his people back to their land to serve him, he takes away their hearts of stone and he gives them hearts of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. And they will understand their former behavior and their wick as wicked. It was wi will it wicked and defiling. And then they will loathe themselves. Here's Ezekiel 20, 43. Because of all their sins that they have committed. They despised and hated their sinful behavior. The sin that they had loved and dedicated their lives to has become loathsome in their sight. Job 42, 5-6 I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. A godly sorrow for sin casts away all excuses. It fully acknowledges sin. It takes full responsibility for guilt. And says, Romans 7, 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You need to bemoan your former sinful conduct like Ephraim. And this is from uh, Jeremiah 31, 19. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. In the ancient Middle East, the beating of one's thighs with the hands was a demonstration of great sorrow and remorse. And when, when you get a chance, look at Ezekiel 21, 12. Men repent only when their hearts are turned by God, when the Holy Spirit shows you your sin and guilt by enabling you to interpret and understand your wicked behavior according to Scripture. Then, and only then, will you have a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51, 17. Now, in considering repentance, it's very important to distinguish between a genuine hatred of sin and simply a fear of punishment or fear of the consequences or the punishment that attends sin. Pagans and atheists may have pangs of conscience for evil actions committed. Some men even make certain moral reforms in their life. They give up being a drunk or they give up drugs or whatever. Or they may give up their mistress and go back to their wife. That does happen. But they do not see sin as an act against God and His holy nature. Therefore, they view certain reforms humanistically and pragmatically. Chains are made not to please and glorify God, but are done for personal glorification and self-centered reasons, and thus do not lead men to forsake all of their sins and flee to Christ for salvation. You know, the Reformers, they talk about civic righteousness. Evil people do good things. They help open a soup kitchen or whatever. That's true. But they don't see sin as God sees it, and they don't flee to Christ. In addition, <clears throat> the remorse of the world over sin, or in most cases, the consequences of sin, does not lead to biblical action based on faith in God's word, but rather the sorrow of masochism and despair. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, 
but the sorrow of the world produces death. True repentance is a sign of God's grace in operation because it produces biblical fruit. But the sorrow of the world produces death because it is rooted in human autonomy from God and thus partakers of the very essence, thus partakes of the very essence of sin. You see these rock stars who commit suicide or they destroy themselves with drugs. You can take all the drugs you want. You can shoot heroin. You can be a hardcore drunk. You can't cover your own sins. You can't get rid of it. You got to go to Christ. You got to admit it's wrong. And you got to go to Christ. There is no sorrow for sin because sin is truly interpreted as a vile, heinous act of rebellion against God. And also for the, for the professing Christian, a consciousness of violating one's covenant love toward Christ. Christian sin, Christian's backslide. But there are sorrow because of the painful and unwelcome consequences of sin. They don't really care about God and Christ. The sorrow of the world produces self-pity, often self-harm, and humanistic guilt trip works of penance that are a humanistic substitute for salvation through Christ. Note that Esau shed many tears when his rebellion led to the loss of his birthright. But he didn't trust God, and he never repented. Hebrews 12, 16 and following. He was upset because of the loss of status and money. But he didn't care about being unfaithful to God at all. David suffered deep sorrow for sin. But his sorrow only strengthened his faith to God. His faith in God. He acknowledged his guilt. He confessed his sin. And his godly sorrow was then transmuted into godly joy. Psalm 51 2 and following, and 12 and following. Peter. Peter denied Christ three times with cursing. Peter wept deeply when he sinned. But he repented, and he spent his whole life serving Christ. And he died as a martyr. According to tradition, he was crucified upside down. He says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Christ. Do it upside down. And they did it upside down. Judas the betrayer was deeply grieved. But he went out and he hung himself. Do you have godly sorrow that leads to repentance and a life of service to Christ? Or the world's sorrow that leads to weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell? <clears throat> There's a vast difference between the two. Christians sin. But Christians always repent and follow Christ. They don't give it up. They don't hit the bottle. They don't take heroin or commit suicide, which is absolute foolishness and wickedness. Well, that's repentance in the strict sense. Let's look at the fruit of repentance. Third, repentance also involves a change of will and direction that always results in tangible fruit. Okay, we can't see the heart. We don't know if somebody's really a Christian. We have to look at their life. We have to look at their fruit. What does their life produce? A person due to the work of the Holy Spirit turns away from an old life of sin, human autonomy, idolatry, seeks salvation solely through Christ, and then loves, serves, and habitually obeys Christ as Savior and Lord. While the change of mind in repentance is a reflection of one's faith in Christ and his infallible word, the change of behavior that occurs is connected in Scripture with the doctrine of sanctification. Because it, it refers to a change of behavior. We don't earn our salvation at all. Christ did it. But once we're saved, we show our covenant loyalty, we show our love, we show our dedication by serving Christ. Now, sanctification, let me define it. <clears throat> sanctification is a work of God's grace within man that begins in regeneration and continues throughout the whole life, throughout the whole Christian's life, as the Holy Spirit transforms the heart of man, intellect, will, and emotions in conjunction with the Holy Scriptures. 
John 7, 17, and 1 Peter 2, 2. Enabling the believer to more and more put off sin and put on righteous thoughts, words, and deeds. Ephesians 4, 22-32. Although God is the author, enabler, and cause or power behind this lifelong process due to the efficacy of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Romans 6, 3-13, Galatians 5.24, etc. It is a process in which man is required to cooperate. Man is required to diligently, continuously, use all of the means of grace that God has given him. Bible reading, attending the preached word, the sacraments as defined by scripture, singing God's word, prayer to God through Christ. In the means of grace, God's word is always primary. For it is the sole standard for faith, that is doctrine and life, ethics, behavior, government. Okay, the sacraments don't do a bit of good unless... They're defined by the Word of God, and you have faith in what the Word of God says about the sacraments. Because of the remaining corruption of sin in our members, sanctification is never complete in this life. And for the soul, it is perfected at death for the physical body at the final resurrection and glorification. Now, that's important to know because you're still a sinner you still have to fight the sinful flesh. And if you don't realize that, you don't understand that the life's going to be a struggle, that narrow road, you're going to go into despair, and you're going to start doubting your salvation all the time. Life is a struggle. Don't give it up. <clears throat> when a multitude of Jews who did not have faith and were committed to a sinful lifestyle came out to be baptized by John, he said to them, Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Luke 3, 7 and 8. He knew they weren't, they didn't care about God. They were curious about John. As we consider this doctrine, we must always keep in mind that repentance is not a co-ground or co-instrument of salvation, but is evidence that true faith in Christ exists. Therefore, John said, every tree, that is everyone who professes the true religion, which does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 3.10. Therefore, Paul preacheth the Gentiles, this is Acts 26.20, 20, should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. You have faith? Well, I'll show you my faith by my works. If you don't have any works, you have dead faith. You don't have real faith. Show me your works. This teaching is very similar to James telling believers to prove or demonstrate that their faith is seen in, uh, in Christ is, is real or genuine by their works. James 2, 14 to 20. As Peter says, it's a wonderful passage, 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7. Giving all diligence, add to your faith that is by exercising it in one's behavior. Virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Second Peter 1, 5-7. So as a Christian's faith must be operative daily, every single day, so must his repentance or continued sanctification. Our daily repentance of fruit requires daily dedication, daily care, daily cultivation. Take it one day at a time. The importance of this teaching is found throughout Scripture. Let us note how God repeatedly emphasizes the need for fruit or a daily walk that pleases Christ. Number one, in the Old Testament, Israel was redeemed from Egypt in order to obey God's law. Not as a system of merit to earn salvation, but as a means of covenant faithfulness and sanctification. Exodus 19, 4-6, 21-17, Psalm 128, 1-2, Deuteronomy 27, 11-20, and 28, and 28, 1-8. And 
I've saved you, Israel. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've delivered you from bondage. Now I want you to be my bride and show me some love. Not to say, not to be saved. Just show me your dedication to me. Follow my ordinances, my statutes, my laws. Number two, our Lord emphasized that his disciples, that one could not be his disciple without following him. Matthew 19, 21 to 20, or becoming his disciple. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, uh, Acts 2, 41 to 42, and 6, 1. Jesus said, if anyone desires, and this is, let me, this is Matthew 16, 24 to 26, and it's repeated in Mark 8, 34. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Okay, you're no longer going to follow human autonomy. You're no longer going to do what you want to do. You're going to do what Christ wants you to do. And take up his cross, that instrument of pain, and follow me. Four, whosoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What if you're worth a uh, hundred billion dollars? What if you have a billion dollar mansion? What if you have the best car collection in the world? What if you have a, a whole stable of beautiful women? What if society looks up to you as something great? What's that going to do for you when you're on your deathbed and you're about to die? Nothing. You cannot take it with you. If you die and go to hell, all that stuff's going to go to other people. When old people die, if they have children, they come, they divide what's left, and a lot of stuff goes to goodwill, and a lot of stuff is simply sold. It's sad. You can't take it with you. What you do for Christ, that's what lasts forever. John 12, 36, if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Number three, Christ taught that being a Christian involves leaving behind the broad path of the world that leads to destruction and staying on the narrow, the very narrow, difficult path that leads to life. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. John says, and this is uh, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Here's another one. 1 John 5, 3-4. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You have true faith, you never give up. Are you going to have temptations? Yes. Are you going to sin sometimes? Yes. Are you going to have dirty thoughts and things like that that, are, that you don't like, that you hate, that you wish you could get rid of? Yes. But you don't give up. Four. Jesus said that being a Christian involves confessing him before men, even in times when people hate Christianity and being people are being persecuted. Matthew 10, 32 to 33, it's repeated in Luke 12, 8 to 9. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, on the last day, Jesus is going to go, he's not one of mine. Do you care what pagans think about you? Don't! Be obedient to God. Who cares what they think? They're vile, satanic, wicked reprobates. Don't care what they think. Be at peace with all men as, as much as possible as lies within you to do so. But confess Christ and do it proudly. Do it boldly. Don't. Who cares what they think? Satan doesn't like it either. Do you care what Satan thinks? Who cares what the world thinks? Look at the world. Everything they, they hold dear is excrement and rubbish, nonsense. The pagans with their award shows and their awards. Who cares? They end up in hell. Number five. Being a Christian involves putting off the old man and putting on the new. 
10, after describing the spiritual blindness and wickedness of the heathen, Paul says, this is uh, Ephesians 4, 20 to 24, and then compare, you can compare 1 Corinthians 15, 31. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And also, I believe it's, I believe it's Romans 12 where he talks about the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You study the scriptures. You learn the new world and life view. You learn the new ethical system that God has taught us. And you submit to it. And you pray that you, God will help you submit to it. Number six. Christians have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and therefore are no longer enslaved to the world, Satan, in the realm of death, but to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 and C, 7:23, where this is repeated almost verbatim. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The deliverance of men from the power and condemnation of sin was not affected by simple power or by truth, like a philosophy, but by the blood of Christ, by ransom. We were justly held in bondage. We were under the penalty of the law. And under <coughs> and until that penalty was satisfied, we could not be delivered. The blood of Christ is our ransom. Because it met all the demands of justice. The law violated the curse of the law. And of course, his perfect positive righteousness. Because we were redeemed at such a price, we must honor Jesus by our whole lives. Our bodies and souls have been set apart and consecrated for the worship and service of God. What a privilege! What a blessing! Jesus said, Come to me, come to me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christians are to study, meditate on, and learn God's moral law and habitually obey it as the standard of daily living or personal sanctification. Psalm 19, 7 to 11, and then read all of Psalm 119. If we learn and habitually obey God's word, we will walk in the light and imitate God's holiness, for he is light. 1 John 1, 5 to 7, Ephesians 5, 8. And this is how we imitate the Apostle Paul in his imitation of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. We are to watch and pray against temptation. Matthew 26, 41, Mark 14, 38. Never deliberately entering into temptation. Matthew 6, 13. And flee it immediately if and when we encounter it. 2 Peter 2, 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, 10, 14. 2 Timothy 2, 22. We are to, speak, we are to seek moral purity or conformity to the word of God from the inside out. 1 John 3, 3, 1 Peter 1, 15, uh, 16 and 2 Corinthians 7, 1, promptly and sincerely. And we must keep company with the godly and avoid as much as possible any friendships, covenants, or partnerships with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And we must saturate our minds with the word of God for the Holy Spirit's renewing of our minds Ephesians 4, 17 and 23, and as I noted earlier, Romans 12, 2, occurs as the old pagan, foolish, worldly, false way of thinking about God, Jesus, reality, life, priorities, ethics, etc. is progressively replaced by godly, biblical counterparts. You know what's really good about this is Jay Adams. You got a problem with sin? You got a sinful habit? You got a besetting sin? 
the solution is not simply to stop doing it. That's the beginning, obviously, but you've got to replace it with a godly counterpart. You've got a problem with lust? Find a good wife or find a good husband. Get married. You know, you, they, handle it. If you've got a problem with stealing, stop stealing. Start, start working hard at a job so you have extra money so you can help the poor or you can help other Christians. You get a problem with lying. Speak the truth in love. If you're a rotten, filthy gossiper and slanderer of other people, you love to gossip. Stop. Start seeing the good in people and being positive and not badmouth people behind their back. Follow Matthew 18 if there is an actual sin that needs to be dealt with. Christians become more and more holy because they want to. Pagans become more and more vain and corrupt because that is their unregenerate nature. Here's what Paul says, Romans 8, 5-9. <clears throat> For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It hates God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So let us continually exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. 1 Peter 2, 2, brethren, excuse me, 1 Peter 1, 10, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. There can be no substitute for a prayerful, careful, regular study and an honest, obedient, thorough application of scriptures to our thinking and our lives. First Peter 2.2, 2, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now given this redemptive fact, what Christ has done, we must dedicate our whole lives to Jesus Christ and his kingdom of grace. As Paul so clearly tells us, Romans 12, 1-2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, is this how you think about your life? Have you dedicated your whole existence to loving, obeying, serving, honoring, and glorifying Christ, your precious Lord and Savior? If not, then pray, Lord God, open my eyes to see your dear Son as revealed in Scripture. <clears throat> Bend my heart and cleanse it so that I will love Christ and put him first in all things. Give me the ability to enter that narrow gate and take up my cross daily and follow Christ as one of my as one of his disciples. Have mercy on me, Jesus, the Son of the Living God. And then number seven. Being a disciple of Christ involves joining yourselves together with God's people, the visible church, and loving them for Christ's sake. The Apostle John presents a love of other Christians as an evidence of being born again and possessing true faith. 1 John 2, 9-11, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause of stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There are professing Christians out there who just love to gossip and put people down and trash people behind their back, which is at, totally anti-Christ. Yes, people sin. People need to be dealt with. But you do it privately, Roman, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15 and following. You do it privately at first. You try to work with them. And if they're obstinate in their sin, you, go to the, you have to get a witness, and then you go to the elders. There's things to do. If you're not doing that, if you're not loving your brother, and if you're just trashing them because you hate them, then you're not a Christian. If you refuse to attend public worship and you do not fellowship with Christians, but rather have fellowship with atheists and pagans, 
then your profession of faith is essentially worthless. Why would you want to hang out with a pagan? What do you have in common with them? And if you're a Christian, the answer is basically nothing. You might talk about sports or the weather, but that's about it. Acts 2.41-42 Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's the apostles and their church in Jerusalem. And they, the new believers, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Acts 2, 41-42. <clears throat> One must sit under the preaching of the gospel, of a minister of the gospel at public worship services. One's continued orthodoxy and growth in grace is dependent on sitting under solid Bible expository preaching. Now, it's also dependent on you studying your Bible and studying theology on your own as well. You only can get so much out of public worship. Most ministers today preach for about 35 minutes. And most of preaching today is very shallow. But if you have a good, solid preacher, you're going to learn a lot. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing cannot occur without a preacher. Romans 10.14 For adults, the biblical pattern is this. Faith in Christ, Trinitarian water baptism, then church membership for continued discipleship. Paul told the young minister Timothy, and this is from <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. Preach the word, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they, that is many professing Christians, will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves false teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Not good. Now, just a side note. With the Bible's insistence on the fruits of repentance and sanctification in mind, with that in mind, it is crucial once again to know that such good works or fruits or personal holiness has absolutely nothing to do with our justification before God. They are not grounds or co-instruments of our justification, but are fruits of faith and repentance. Although they always exist in the person who has true faith in Christ, and thus give evidence of true faith, or genuine faith, we must never treat them as meritorious or as earning God's favor. Okay, that's the error of Roman Catholicism in the Federal Vision. We are, saved by, uh, we are not saved by faith plus works, but by faith in Christ, apart from the works of the law. Our credo is faith alone in Christ alone. Now, before we leave the fruit of repentance behind, there are a few other things to keep in mind. Number one, we must learn to live the sanctified, repentant life in the here and now. Focus on being obedient to Christ each and every day. Glorify God today and each and every day. Avoid the worldly, deluded, self-deceived mindset that always postpones repentance to some future undetermined day that never comes. Number two, do not make peace with any known sin. Put them all to death. A sincere repentance is an entire repentance. Don't make peace with sin. Number three, always keep in mind that we still have the corruption of sin in our members and that all Christians are still sinners. Our whole life is a battle against the flesh, the old man, the body of sin. The Christian life is a constant struggle. Therefore, you must never give up. You must always persevere. You must not get discouraged. If you sin or backslide, you must repent, confess, and continue onward. True Christians don't give up. Abraham sinned. Moses sinned. David sinned. Solomon sinned. Peter sinned. But they repent, and they pick themselves up, and they move forward serving God. Satan will tell you that you are not good enough. You might as well give it up. But don't listen. 
While we know that we are never good enough, we must keep our faith focused on Christ and live for him. Many Christians and even great men of God, such as David and Peter, fell into serious, scandalous sins. But they refused to give up. They repented. They confessed. They went on to do great things for God. And then four. Remember also that local churches are made up of saved sinners as well. Do not expect a perfect church. You'll be very disappointed. There is no such thing. And also be forgiving, loving, and compassionate to those who do fall into sin and then repent and continue. I've seen an attitude among Christians. It's very common. Somebody makes, falls into a grievous sin and then they're never forgiven. They're, t they're treated like dirt the rest of their life. That is totally unchristian. We, of all people who have been forgiven by Christ, should be forgiving. When people genuinely repent, when people are sorry for their sins and they confess them and they repent, they stop. They need to be forgiven and, and treated as, they, as being really forgiven. And then five, do not judge Christ of the Bible negatively based on the heretical beliefs and unchristian behavior of professing Christians. That's a tactic that Satanists and pagans do all the time. The Roman Catholics persecuted the Jews and did many horrible things in the Middle Ages. But those people weren't Christians. They were phony Christians. Going around killing people. Not only do we have, <clears throat> not only do we have examples of new believers being baptized and joining themselves to the church, Acts two forty one to forty two and ten forty five to forty eight, but the apostle Paul tell, explicitly tells Christians to keep attending public worship. This is um, from Hebrews ten twenty four to twenty five, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. Now, having looked at the fruits of repentance and sanctification to a degree, we can now see why some common ways of thinking today are false and dangerous. One view that is very popular, I'm sure you've all heard it if you've been around for a while. Well, I believe in God. But I don't believe in the institutional or organized church. Have you heard that? I believe in God, but oh, the church, I don't believe in that. Well, the problem with this view is that Jesus Christ set up the church with its officers and duties so that his people can be edified. Romans 12, 4-8, Ephesians 4, 11-12, and Hebrews 10, 24-25 under oversight and biblical discipline. Ephesians 4, 10 to 14, Hebrews 13, 7, Matthew 18, 17 to 20, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 11, and Titus 1, 5 to 11, with fellowship, mutual service, nurture, and edification in the corporate body. Hebrews 10, 25, Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, 1 Corinthians 14, 12. The Bible's explicit. The Bible's explicit. Christ, Jesus Christ, after he ascended unto God, he set up the ordinances. He set up church government. The Jews always met for public worship in the Old Testament, and Christians are to meet for public worship and honor the Sabbath in the New Testament. The day of the Sabbath has been changed from Saturday to Sunday, the first day of the week, to honor Christ's resurrection, his redemptive victory. So if you're not attending church, if you're not part of the church, you're in rebellion against God. Moreover, the preached word and the administration of the sacraments and church discipline are all tied by Jesus Christ to an ordained ministry. Teaching elders, pastors, or ministers can only be ordained by a presbytery that is a body of ministers in a given geographical location. So this idea that we don't need the church and the churches. I, I like God. I'm a real spiritual person, but I don't go to church. I go to the beach. I, I just go surfing instead. No, you're just fooling yourself. You're a rotten hypocrite. You need the church. The church was set up for us, for everybody. You need the preach word. You need the public means of grace. You need iron to sharpen iron and other Christians. So get that attitude out of your mind. Another common error today is for people to view churches as entertainment centers or social clubs. The church is viewed humanistically as a place to make us feel good, 
to stimulate self-esteem or exalt our social status. While churches, public worship, and private Christian gatherings are for fellowship, their main purpose is to glorify God and further Christian edification through the public means of grace, especially the preached word. The faithful ex exposition and application of God's word to the heart. Sermons that consist of human philosophy and traditions, pop psychology and self-esteem messages, or humanistic platitudes masquerading as Christian doctrine, for example, modernism, are not only worthless but harmful. The only way to make progress in sanctification is to have our thinking transformed by the Holy Spirit as he applies the word of God to our minds. We are to think God's thoughts after him and stop following the world in human autonomy. Therefore, we must diligently seek and then find a faithful, detailed, doctrinal, comprehensive, applicatory preaching of the word. That may be difficult today, but keep looking. And if you have to move, move. The idea that is common in our day that Christian doctrine is relatively unimportant and that the church must focus on all sorts of programs that are regarded as fun, practical, and popular with unbelievers is totally false. Christ and the apostles were obsessed with true doctrine. For if the gospel is not defined by the scriptures, it is not the gospel. And then just briefly, just a few matters on finding a church. I never did get to finish this, but we'll just we'll be brief here. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and repented of your own old, unconverted lifestyle, it is crucial that you are baptized and then be, and become connected to a solid Bible-believing church. Some of the important teachings to look for are as follows. Number one, there must be a consistent a commitment to the inspiration and authority of Scripture. A church must teach that the Bible is infallible or inerrant from cover to cover, not only when speaking of spiritual or religious matters, but in all matters, science, origins, geology, history, law, economics, education, etc., etc. The Bible alone must be regarded as the sole or final authority for faith and life. This teaching means that the authority of pastors and elders is a delegated ministerial authority, not an intrinsic, creative, or autonomous authority. Okay, they're under God's authority. They're under the Bible. They can't discipline you for anything other than violating what the Bible teaches. This teaching means that their job is to teach and apply Scripture. Their own opinions or church traditions or man-made rules and ordinances have no authority whatsoever and should be rejected. Number two, the church must be committed to the Orthodox Trinitarianism. There is one God, the divine being. In the divine being, there is but one indivisible essence, who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, individual subsistences or personal self-distinctions within the divine essence. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. The whole of the undivided essence of God belongs uh, equally to each of the three persons. There is no subordinationism as to essential being among the three persons. The Father is neither begotten by nor proceeds from any other person. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. This is a difficult, mysterious doctrine, I admit. But it is taught throughout the whole Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, and we must receive it by faith. All faults, monotheistic religions and cults, deny this doctrine and teach various forms of Unitarianism. If you're not a Trinitarian, you're not a Christian. If you're not a Trinitarian, you're going straight to hell when you die. <coughs> Number three, the church must teach the full divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Christ is fully God and fully man in one person. The two natures, divine and human, are united in such a way that they are not mixed together into some third substance, nor are they separate in such a, separate in such a way that the divine son simply controls the human body. The Divine Son in the Incarnation took upon himself man's nature with all its essential properties and post-fall infirmities, yet without sin. The two distinct natures were inseparably joined together without conversion or a mixing or change or confusion of the two natures. This fundamental doctrine is denied by all the cults and non-Christian monotheistic religions. Jesus had to be a real sinless man to suffer and die in our place. And he had to be fully God to offer a sacrifice of infinite value to the Father 
and intercede for millions and millions of Christians on earth simultaneously. Very, very important, the divinity of Christ. All the cults deny it. Islam denies it. Jews deny it. And they're wrong. Four, the church must strictly adhere to the biblical doctrine of salvation. This means that they must confess that one is saved solely by Jesus Christ, received by faith alone, without the works of the law, or human merit of any kind. This excludes Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, the New Perspective on Paul, the Federal Vision, and all the cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. It also means that churches that teach Arminianism, or semi-Pelagianism, this is a philosophy that arose in the 1600s, must be rejected as well. Make sure that the church adheres to the five points of sovereign grace. A. Total depravity. Man is dead in trespasses and sins and cannot make a move toward God or choose Christ without a prior work of the Holy Spirit upon his heart. I'm not gonna, I've, I've got about 20 passages listed. I'm not going to refer to them. I, we don't have time. But you can, this will be on my website later. You can look it up or read my book on the five points of Calvinism. The new birth or regeneration logically precedes saving faith and repentance. The Arminians teach that it follows. You make yourself born again by an act of the free will, the autonomous human will. B, unconditional election. God, out of his own good pleasure, chooses those he intends to save from before the foundation of the world. God is in charge of who is saved, not sinful man. C, definite atonement. Jesus Christ has suffered and bled his, bled his precious blood only for the sheep, the elect, the people who are actually saved. He, he did this for his people in every nation, but not for everyone, everywhere without exception. His redemptive work does not make salvation possible, but from beginning to end actually saves sinners. The Arminianism teaches that he made salvation possible, and you complete what he did by your so-called autonomous act of the free will, which is kind of ridiculous when you take into account that men are dead in trespasses and sin. His redemptive work does not make salvation possible for meaning and actually save sinners. The gifts of regeneration, effectual calling, faith, and repentance follow from the efficacy of Jesus' death, life, death, and resurrection. If Jesus died for you, you will be saved. D. Irresistible grace. Because Jesus Christ achieved a perfect, sufficient, once-for-all salvation, God's grace toward man is efficacious or always effective. God works directly on man's heart, regenerating, enlightening, renovating, purifying, enabling, drawing to Christ. Therefore, God's grace always results in salvation. In theological terms, salvation is motorgistic, not synergistic. Sanctification, where we have to walk holy, yeah, that's a cooperative process. But salvation, in the strict sense of the term, is something God does. And then E, perseverance of the saints. Those who are chosen by God, for whom Jesus died and rose again, are preserved by the Holy Spirit and Christ's intercession until death and therefore cannot apostatize or go to hell. A church that does not teach justification by faith alone or the five points of sovereign grace do not, does not preach the gospel as defined by scripture and is a false church, avoid such churches like the plague. And I hear people, I hear Reformed people, oh, well, if you live in a town and there's no good churches, by just attend the local Armenian Baptist church. No, don't do that. Those men aren't qualified to be elders or preachers. They're heretics. They should be excommunicated. They have absolutely no business preaching the gospel. If you're not teaching the truth, you shouldn't be a preacher. Five. The church must teach the necessity of repentance and a life of discipleship, sanctification, and personal growth and grace. Due to a 19th century heresy called dispensationalism, popularized in the 20th century by C.I. Schofield, it's very popular in evangelical circles, many people have been taught that repentance only applies to the Jews, and that a life of holiness and service to Christ as Lord is optional. Remember the four spiritual laws? You can have Jesus as your Savior, and if you want to down the road make him Lord of your life, you can do that. Well, that's based on dispensationalism. That's a lie. Such thinking is radically unbiblical and dangerous. Paul said that he preached Christ the Lord, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and told everyone that they had to bow the knee to him as Lord now, or they will be forced to bow to him in terror at the final judgment, Philippians 2, 8, and 9. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Acts 16, 31. In the book of Acts, the word Savior appears twice. 
5.31 and 13.23, while the title Lord occurs 92 times. 92 times. The most commonly quoted prophecies in the whole New Testament are Psalms 2.7 and 110.1, both of which speak of the exaltation and lordship of Christ. Paul says we must confess the Lord Jesus, Romans 10.9, to be saved. And while some Gentiles, when some Gentiles believed in Jesus Christ and received the Holy Spirit, the apostles and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, this is from Acts 11.18b, glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. That one verse alone proves dispensation, disproves dispensationalism and the idea that you can have Christ as Savior and not obey him as Lord. In our day, Jesus is often presented as a hell insurance policy who came to give, us, to give out material prosperity and self-esteem. But the apostles preached his lordship and required people to believe in him as Lord and bow the knee to him as Lord before their admittance into the church. And one of the main purposes of Paul's gospel ministry was, and this is directly from Romans 15.18, to make the Gentiles obedient unto Christ. God saves people to serve him. He saves people to obey his law. He saves people to be uh, covenantally faithful to him. He saves people to act like a faithful bride. He doesn't save people so they can continue in sin and act like uh, they did before. What a crazy doctrine. Personal godliness must be a top priority for churches, for it was a top priority for the apostles. Paul says, 1 Timothy 4.8, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. 2 Timothy 2.19 Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19 Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God preferred before him that we should walk in them. Hebrews 12.14 Pursue peace with all men in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The word there for pursue or follow indicates a dedicated earnest, strong striving after a holy life. And Peter says, we have been chosen by God for sanctification of the Spirit and obedience toward God, 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2. So look for a church with solid expositional preaching, careful oversight, and biblical church discipline. We're saved to follow Christ. We're saved to be obedient. We're saved to be holy. Be holy for I am holy. And then we'll end with this, number six. And there's more things, but I, never, I, didn't, I don't have time to get to them. The church must be dedicated fully to Christian orthodoxy and biblical worship. In our day, doctrine is seen as something unimportant, as even an impediment to church growth and broadening one's fellowship and ecumenical outreach. For purposes of church growth and popularity, various doctrines are deliberately downplayed and even ignored altogether. Other crucial doctrines are infused with humanism and heresies to appeal to human autonomy, the sinful flesh, and the spirit of this world. Popular megachurch pastors have even publicly acknowledged that they don't talk about sin or judgment or hell because they have positive ministries. That's exactly what Joel Olstein said when he was on Nightline or whatever that show was. Or it could have been Oprah Winfrey. Such churches and their worldly anti-Christian concepts of ministry must be avoided like the plague. The church's responsibility is to preach the whole counsel of God, to glorify God in Jesus Christ by teaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It is better to have ten faithful Christians, the true gospel, and biblical teaching than ten thousand deluded heretics living in self-deception, led by a false prophet, a humanistic fool. Who cares how big your church is? Americans are so focused on that. We have, we have tennis courts in our church. We have a swimming pool. We have a basketball tournament. Who cares when you don't have the truth? Find a church that is truly dedicated to the doctrinal attainments of the Protestant Reformation, that adheres to the Reformed creeds, catechisms, and confessions. The Westminster Standards, 1646 to 1647, the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, the Belgian Confession, 1561, the Canons of Dort, 1618 to 1619, the Second Helvetic Confession, 1566. As new believers, you must stand on the achievements of those who went before you that faithfully interpreted and preached from Scripture. We don't reinvent the wheel. There are people who were faithful before us. We stand on their shoulders. Let us do so. Let us be faithful. Let us really repent. Life is a struggle. We're on the narrow road that leads to life. Don't ever give up. 
Don't be discouraged. Confess your sins. Pray. Move forward. The worst thing that you can do is give up because it shows that you never had true faith to begin with. So be faithful. Repent. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your doctrine. Help us to repent, to die daily. Help us to put off the old man. Help us to subdue the sinful flesh. Help us to put to death the deeds of the body so we can be faithful to your dear son, Jesus Christ, and show our love for him. We hate sin, yet we still at times want to do it and we want to think about things that we shouldn't think about. We want to look upon things that we shouldn't look upon. Give us a hatred of sin, Lord. Give us the ability to die daily and follow your word. And when we do sin, Lord, we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us on account of Christ's blood. But we don't want to sin, Lord. Help us. Save us from this body of death. In Jesus' name, amen.